Hey everyone, welcome back to Zora's Daughters, the podcast where we discuss popular culture with a Black feminist anthropological lens. I'm Alyssa, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. Hi, I'm Brendan, and I use she, her, hers pronouns as well. In our last episode of the semester, Tear, Tear, Cry, Cry, (laughs) um, we will be talking about Blackness, indigeneity, the impossibility of solidarity, and M in parentheses, as the scholars do, and so much more. We will be joined by the brilliant Amber Starks, a.k.a. Melanin Muskogee, and we should should also say that we're recording this episode about a week early so if something else goes down in the meantime that's why it wasn't addressed so please don't dm us (laughs) (laughs) we wanted a break break a break break a break break yes (laughs) so we will see you all in february 2022 but in the meantime here's something else that we wanted to say we cannot stress this enough Thank you so much to every single one of you who have and continue to support this podcast. If you're listening, you're a supporter. If you've donated, you're a supporter. If you engage with us on Instagram and Twitter, you are a supporter. And we appreciate you. We appreciate you. You get a thank you. You get a thank you. You get a thank you. (laughs) Because without you, this podcast would just be the tree in the forest that didn't make a sound. So for information on how to donate, head to our website, zorasdaughters.com. And if it's not in your budget right now, you can help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and following us on Zora's Daughters on Instagram and Zora's underscore daughters on Twitter. And please, for the sake of humanity, put people on this podcast. Put people on. Share it with your friends, frenemies. Or play it on the long drive to see your partner's family in Rocky Mount, North Carolina for the holidays, which is what I'm going to be doing the day that you are listening to this podcast. Mm. (laughs) Well, let me go ahead and speak to the future. You say the best (laughs) of luck on that. Um, That drive is going to be a long one. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be a long one. I've driven past Rocky Mount and... It's country, girl. It's, you know, you ain't got no cell phone service probably a good bit of the time. Just just a warning. I don't believe you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I do. Last time I went, um, my ex and I were, were in that area. Several blackout moments. Um, I had to practice presence. Um, but I hope that y'all <laughs> that y'all have an amazing time and that you eat well because of food. Mm. Okay. Mm. Uh, my plans for the holidays are to rest and relax as much as possible before this next stage of writing begins, the next semester begins. I'm so tired, but mm-hmm. I will be going back to South Carolina to see my family around Christmas, and then I'll spend New Year's with my other family. I'll be in North Carolina for a little bit as Okay, well. so we're um, going to be in the Carolinas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and those are all of my plans as of now um by the time y'all listen to this i will have finished up all of my fellowship applications for the year 2021 so a bitch is uh ret to stop instead of ret to go i'm ret to stop <laughs> yes the grant apps are done 
congrats to all of the folks who finished their Ford applications on time. Mm, yes. Uh, I'm sure that you also cannot wait for this break. And I hope that you all are not doing that very academic thing of trying to schedule writing over the holidays. Because you know, you know you're not going to do it. So why disappoint yourself? Mm. Why set yourself mm. up for the failure? Wow. A <laughs> just, word. <laughs> a word. <laughs> just, take, just take a break. All right. And, you know, own it, live with it. So <laughs> since it's our last episode of the season or of the semester, I should say, this is a mid-season break we'll be taking. Let's make this one a good one. Brendan, what's the word? The word for today is praxis. As um, praxis. As praxis, as you as, may have heard. As praxis. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and while I may not be the word nerd that Alyssa is, I'm going to take y'all back to the Greeks where Aristotle posited that humans engage in three basic activities. So first one being theoria, which is thinking, poesis, which is making, and praxis, which is doing. And so praxis then becomes a process of an idea being translated into action. And praxis is typically associated with Marxism and the work of Antonio Gramsci, but a variety of disciplines have their own applications for praxis. For example, in education, praxis describes experiential learning, while in psychology, praxis can refer to the cycle of action, reflection, action that allows us to integrate theory or lesson into lived experience. And these definitions broadly deal with theory and action, but the way they are put into use is very different. So basically what you're saying is the disciplines have different praxes? Yes, they have different <laughs> praxes. Um, but at least in my opinion, where I sit, right, praxis is not necessarily something that's associated with academic disciplines because let's be real about it, right? Who is doing what they're studying and reading? Um, who's doing it? But mm. let me get off my, <laughs> my shady soapbox. <laughs> Um, some people are come on some, you know some of us try um but typically when people talk about praxis in social or youth work or education they're often using paulo freire's interpretation of marxist praxis from pedagogy of the oppressed and he describes praxis as quote a reflection and action upon the world in order to transform it and he argued that people had a responsibility to act in ways that would create a more just world and one that centered freedom. And this can only happen when one is actively interrogating their own values in relation to the values of the world, right? Like you have to engage the work of other people with whom you'd like to build liberation. So it practice then mm -hmm. becomes kind of iterative process where you're constantly checking yourself, checking the world, checking others. Mm -hmm. right? You can't simply praxis one time <laughs> and then, you know, be a good social justice warrior as some of the IG girls would have you believe, mm -hmm. you know, it is actually a nonlinear process through which we move ourselves to the world that we want to live in. Yes. Hold on to that nonlinear because it's going to become very important in our next segment as well. Mm hmm. But since I love a shorthand, I always talk about my little shorthands for reading, for being able to move through jargony texts easily. I understand praxis as a theory plus practice plus values. And I think values are especially important when it comes to black feminism. I think praxis is often understood as thoughtful action, 
a practice that is reflexive, responsive, and theoretically informed. So when we incorporate values, we also consider what it is that we are committed to, mm -hmm. specifically how we want the world to change on account of our actions. So how ought the world look on account of my theorizing and my action? Praxis, then, is also ethical and accountable action. So to whom are you accountable? These communities may not be the same communities that you are already a member of. Right. Like, for example, um, as a Black cis queer woman right, who does radical work, um, I'm accountable to Black trans communities, even though I'm not a member of these communities. And I do not believe in allyship for a variety of reasons. So if you ever see me calling myself an ally to a community, it's because I'm probably trying to get some grant money. Mm. Um, I, <laughs> right, I, I understand that my research, though, and my community work doesn't mean shit if it doesn't benefit Black trans people. Mm. So that's aligned with my values that come out of radical Black feminist principles and, you know, in other words, right, it's not enough to say that I'm about it, right? I actually have to be about it by doing things that are aligned with Black trans self-determination, even if that costs me a privilege or something, mm -hmm. right? And I think the aspect of values, as you so astutely brought into this conversation, Alyssa, gets left out in favor of the very academic orientation to separate thinking and doing, uh, it's why applied academics or activist academics are not considered as rigorous as purely theoretical ones, which we have heard time and time again. Mm -hmm. um, and purely, <laughs> although purist may be a strong word, you know, since they're often taking their cues from something in the world, right? There's no such thing as pure theory. Uh, theoretical ones are often criticized for being out of touch with the real world. So even... But even Aristotle was thinking of praxis as being guided by values or a moral disposition to act rightly or in a way that is conducive to the good life, as he loves to say. He does. He loves he loves the good life. Like he's the original <laughs> good life talking about that. Oh, stuff. He's the original at least, dreamer. Yes. At least in at least in the. Uh, what is it? Modern Western philosophical paradigm. <laughs> mm. He's the original good life person. So another part of um, the concept of praxis that I wanted to take up is the idea that it's responsive or like you mm -hmm. said, that it's iterative. So it says to me that it should be attentive and attuned to context. So it can't necessarily be operationalized. So there's only so much we can really, I think that we can say, at least in this small segment, mm -hmm. about praxis. But our theory influences our practice but context also contributes to the way we understand theory, which is why it's so important to interrogate hegemonic theories that emerge from Western Europe, right? So we cannot take these theories outside of their context and apply them to our current situation as is. Mm -hmm. That's how you get communist movements that exclude the needs of black or blackened people around the world. And so we must examine when, how, and why they emerge, and then ask ourselves if those conditions have produced a theory that is translatable to the present. If not, how can we lean on theories created by marginalized people that bring us closer to liberation? You know, I think that's an excellent question and also an excellent transition to our next segment. So Alyssa, what are we reading today? All right, so today we're reading something a little different. As you may have noticed, we've been experimenting with form 
So in this episode, we're reading an interview featuring Robin Maynard and Leanne Batazamosake Simpson entitled, Every Day We Must Get Up and Relearn the World. Which, let's talk about titles, honey. Titles. Great. <laughs> um, <laughs> Robin Maynard is a Toronto-based writer and scholar. Her wide-ranging body of work on policing, abolition, and Black liberation has received a number of prominent nominations and awards, has been translated into multiple languages, and is taught widely across universities in Canada, the U.S., and Europe. She is a Vanier Scholar and the winner of the Shirk Talent Award and holds a Faculty of Arts and Science top doctoral FAST fellowship at the University of Toronto, where she is studying transnational Black liberation and borders. Ooh, I'm acting like I never heard the word transnational before. Um, Maynard's most well-known work is Policing Black Lives, State Violence in Canada, From Slavery to the Present, a national bestseller. And it was named Best Book of the Year by The Globe and Mail, the Walrus and the Hill Times, shortlisted for an Atlantic Book Award, the Concordia University First Book Prize, and the Mavis Gallant Prize for Nonfiction, and is the winner of the 2017 annual Errol Morris Book Prize. Like, who come girl, prizes, you, come awards. Come through, come <laughs> awards. Hopefully they all came with some money, yes. <laughs> Leanne Batasmosake Simpson is a Mishi Sagig Nishnabek scholar, writer, and artist. Her work breaks open the intersections between politics, story, and song, bringing audiences into a rich and layered world of sound, light, and sovereign creativity. She holds a PhD from the University of Manitoba and has worked for two decades as an independent scholar using Nishnabek intellectual practices. She has taught extensively at universities across Canada and the United States and has 20 years of experience with Indigenous land-based education. She is the author of seven previous books, including her new novel, Nupaming, The Cure for White Ladies, which was named a best book of the year by the Globe and Mail and was shortlisted for the Governor General's Literary Award for Fiction. As we have always done, Indigenous Freedom Through Radical Resistance was awarded best subsequent book by the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association. Simpson and Maynard's new book, Rehearsals for Living, is forthcoming from Knopf Canada, and Haymarket's abolition series in 2022. So this interview actually gives us some insight into their forthcoming book, which was produced in epistolary form. Maynard and Simpson wrote letters back and forth, pushing each other to read and deepen their thinking on what it means to get free, a politics and praxis of rehearsal. So I thought that rehearsal was such an animating concept. So we're, we're going to spend the bulk of our time there with rehearsal today. Uh, throughout the interview, they reflect on topics like the violence of normality, the politics of recognition and respectability, the issue with apocalyptic or apocalyptic <laughs> rhetoric <laughs> and disrupting linear tem temporality and the way that state violence is inherently gendered among so many other important topics. Yes, yes. I And they have it all... They have all the subheadings for you. It's great. Mm -hmm. It's very straightforward. So I really want to commend the interviewers, Hannah Vogel and Christopher Griffin, because their questions were hidden. Their questions were really hidden. Like they, they were really, did. they were really thoughtful and showed that they had engaged very deeply with Maynard and Simpson's work and the work of other black and indigenous thinkers. So the interview also did a really good job of showing how black and indigenous ways of knowing overlap with each other, despite having different genealogies. And so just off jump, 
off rip. They got me thinking about what normal means and what normalcy have we really lost structurally during this pandemic, right? So there's no denying that we've lost a sense of normal when it comes to our interpersonal lives, but the wheels of capitalism kept on turning, especially for people who could easily work from home and for those who were deemed essential workers. And Maynard points out that racially uneven catastrophes of this moment are disasters that follow racial and gendered logics that were put in place long ago, end quote. So I think the reason that this moment has been read as abnormal is because it affected the global, the global North, right? Mm-hmm. Like these kinds of things have been happening in the global South and people who are in the global North as well, but are not part of the majority, we'll say. According to them, our task is to interrupt this normality and, quote, dare to invent the marvelous, end quote, which Maynard takes from Robin D.G. Kelly. And this concept of of rehearsal is the way that they do that. They draw the title of their book from Ruth Wilson Gilmore's words, quote, abolition is life in rehearsal, which for Maynard is a reminder that the liberation, that liberation is actually not a destination, but an ongoing process. A praxis, as they say, as we say, you know? As praxis. For, as praxis. As praxis. Um, <laughs> for Simpson and Maynard, right, rehearsal takes on different registers depending on the context. So rehearsal is study, it is building life-affirming institutions, and is overall a generative life-expanding practice. And that's a quote, right, in and of itself. Simpson is a musician and she sees rehearsal as opposed to a performance, right, as a place where imaginative possibilities can happen, right? So as you're rehearsing, if you make a mistake, you're able to say, well, how can I do this better? But a performance is kind of all the stakes are on the table and it does become, or it can become, right, a win-lose situation. Mm. Uh, Practicing life as a rehearsal of the theories and values that one prioritizes is what actually brings us closer to liberation. So it's not just the performances, quote, right, like the direct actions or the political lobbying or the literal performance of a law being passed, right, mm-hmm. where liberatory action is like short-lived, right? Rehearsal is where we spend most of our time. It's the practicing how you're going to engage an abolitionist politics with your neighbor who stole your package or you know mm. with your which let me did that happen say. to you no, I'm kidding. no um <laughs> well yes but well you know i got my money back so it's fine um <laughs> this section of the interview was so enlightening to me i really thought about what life could be like if i didn't think of each action as kind of this kind of final performance where there's no room for error but as an opportunity to rehearse my values um, as someone who is not really a perfectionist TM, but I like to be perfect, I, and mm. you understand the distinction um, there, um, what kind of grace can I give myself and others with that frame of mind? Like, How can I give myself the ability to practice liberation as a set of possibilities versus this kind of end goal? Um, that was really generative for me. Yeah, I, I really like this section too, and thinking about that concept of rehearsal versus performance. And this might be, y'all might, y'all might roast me for this. Brendan, <laughs> you can roast me for it now so everyone can hear <laughs> the rebuttal. But it got me thinking about the way that we criticize people 
quote unquote allies for being performative, right? Mm. I just watched Sex and the City, <laughs> or and was it called? And just like that thing. And of course, there's a whole scene about you know the white liberal wokeness and Miranda trying to perform it and her just embarrassing herself in front of this black law professor at Columbia. <laughs> of course, all of the New York shows are in Columbia. <laughs> And she just keeps trying to say the right thing, but it comes out as the wrong thing. And she was like, I know, I sound so performative. And I was like, maybe this is too generous, but in cases like that, um, you know, what if we stopped criticizing that as being performative and started to understand it if it's coming from a genuine place as being a rehearsal? They are also rehearsing for like this, for for treating people in a different way or creating this new world as well. But I think that we tend to just be like, man, that's just some performative allyship. She's just trying to use the right words. And obviously at the same time, I do think that it has to come with particular actions that demonstrate that you actually believe mm -hmm. what it is that you are saying and not just being like, oh yes, I absolutely agree that black people you know, deserve to be uh, that their lives matter. I believe that right. it has to come with actions that show that you that you do believe that and you're trying to make that world happen. So again, I guess it comes back to praxis. <laughs> it does. I think, yeah, I mean. That was really you know. rambly, but. <laughs> no, it wasn't really rambly. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to, how to respond in a way that isn't um, going to be too telling of my militant <laughs> beginnings but um yeah I think there's a way to think about rehearsal as something that is a because I was thinking too okay well if I think about life as a rehearsal then do I have to extend that to people who um are part of communities that historically have rehearsed and performed violence and the answer to mm. for me I came to the conclusion no um and <laughs> I think what, what I, what helped me come to that conclusion was thinking through community, right? So it's one thing to engage with someone. And I think a lot of the abolitionist principles too is rooted in community. And in order for me mm. to be in community with you, I have to know who the hell you are, right? I can't call myself to be in community with people that I don't know. And so if I have questions around whether it's sincere, whether it's coming from a place of change, Mm -hmm. then we're probably not in community with each other, which right. means that I might not have, I might not feel obligated to see your, your stumbling or your attempts as rehearsal. Mm -hmm. um, but that, so I don't know, that, that would be my response to that. Um, on a personal level, I'm just like, you know, what What would it mean for white people to really take the time to sit with themselves and be like, you know, I'm not going to speak until I really know what the hell I'm talking about. Mm. And like, and because some, some people are given the privilege and like the power to rehearse in a sense, to make mm. mistakes over and over and over and over and over again. And some of us don't have that opportunity, right? Mm. We, we like literally cannot mess up. Um, in some respects of our lives. And so I think, yeah, it's complicated, but I like that you brought that up. I ha have not watched Sex in the City or just like that. I've just seen people talk about it. So maybe I'll do that over my break. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it's worth it. It's... <laughs> We're getting off topic, but I was 
quite disappointed. There was a lot of mm. telling uh, instead of showing, and I was just like, this is what happens when, when like there's too much hype. There's so much hype, and there's all of these expectations, and they just they overdid it. Anyways, mm. <laughs> we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna get back, but that was you know that was me thinking about ways to other ways of being generous and you mm -hmm. know as I am want to do because I'm still a baby radical. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. You come over this side and you be tired, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I mean, on that on that note, I was like writing a whole bunch of notes and just thinking about other ways mm -hmm. that other ways that we spend a lot of time in rehearsal in our life. For example, in academia, we spend a lot of time in rehearsal because we're always reading, we're we're thinking, we're discussing, but we're not always necessarily producing and writing. Mm. And so when you do finally put that writing out there, you know, that's like, that's almost like your performance. And you've mm. spent a lot of time, I mean, 12 years in school, four years in undergrad, two years of a master's if you did that, and five to seven to nine years in a PhD. So, oh God. you know, before you write a book, like that's a lot of time. <laughs> oh um, but yes, yeah, so I was thinking about how rehearsal and praxis are or could be connected, and praxis mm -hmm. is very much this constant cycle where theory, practice, and reflection are all influencing each other. Rehearsal, I think, for them is generative, a space of possibility that allows us to simultaneously practice and make real the world we want to live in. And so Simpson talks about life being circular and the consequences of which there is no performance, there is no grand stage, there is no final big moment, right? So mm -hmm. our rehearsals are always responsive to the ways that life is unfolding. Which is important. You know, I talked about practicing presence earlier, mm -hmm. um, right? This maintaining being in the moment and acting from that is, and it's especially important in practice. Um, and if we think about this, right, theories don't have to remain fixed in time or kind of plotted along this white supremacist logic of linear progression, which kind of reminded me of our conversation with Naomi earlier this season, right? right? But mm -hmm. these can also be seen as places to return and to refine and to continue to practice if needed or let go, which um, Simpson refers to as moments of foreclosure, right? If it no longer applies. So as Simpson says, abolition is life, oh, abolition is life in rehearsal, uh, offers us, in my interpretation, a way of inhabiting our world with intention as organizers, as theorists, as people in extended communities based in attunement. An attunement not only to the unfolding disaster of the present, but to the unfolding experiments in living differently, to the more liberatory ways of organizing human and earthly life that are being seated in real time, all around us. So all this to say, y'all, liberation is a community project. It's a community process, community practice, community praxis, right? That actually mm -hmm. requires <laughs> our presence in the present. Yes, all of these practices call our attention to the ways Black and Indigenous liberation requires a restructuring of how we experience time and how colonial logics dictate time. We, like everything else on this earth, experience time in cycles. Indigenous communities around the world organized their lives in respect to the earth's timing. Colonialism disrupted that. 
Western hegemonic knowledge teaches us that time moves forward linearly and towards progression. The disconnect becomes apparent when we attempt to apply Western logics of time that justify settler colonialism and anti-blackness and reorganize their violences to our movements. The gag is that Western power structures tell us that progress is happening because time has passed while they participate in the cycle of reorganizing the same old violence under a different name. Mm -hmm. For example, the abolition movement in the 19th century did not abolish slavery, but made it legal as a punishment for crime. Now we must read mass incarceration as a point on the cycle set by an economic system based chattel slavery. And yeah, I think that thinking about life as a rehearsal then allows us to practice fighting back against these systems, against these logics that tell us things are changing when they really ain't. Um, as this really iterative process that incorporates, um, as Maynard says, freedom work, care work, and love work. And I love how she puts the words work after because these things are not just things you do, right? These are things mm. you like practice, you work at. Um, and we recognize in inviting back that we mustn't settle for stop gaps that are things like state recognition, passing laws, maybe someone squeezes a little bit of funding over to your community, right? These are things that only bring temporary solutions to a major problem. And we have to embrace that creating new worlds requires both a destruction of what's already here, right? And building something new. And one of the ways that we can do this is through genitive refusal, which Simpson describes as rejecting state recognition while building new new worlds. And so they kind of, let me step back for a second. So in the interview, they they this section is politics of um, recognition and respectability. And so they kind of posit politics of recognition as an indigenous way of moving about the world versus politics of respectability is something that a lot of black communities are familiar with. But as I was reading it, I was thinking about how um, actually there's no clear delineation, right? It's not like only indigenous people vie for recognition and only black people abide by politics of recognition. So I'd like to think of these things as refusal. It's kind of like the bucket that all of this fits in um, Mm. or could be placed under. And so Simpson is talking about recognition, this recognition of the state and rejecting that while building new worlds that don't require it. And Maynard kind of, well, not kind of, but she actually refers to what I was reading as an age-old fugitive practice of stealing away, where, you know, again, my words, which involves diverting resources from an entity, whether that be the government, a nonprofit, um, your job, you know, wherever, (laughs) wherever, right, to meet one's needs or the needs of one's communities uh, without reproducing respectability politics. And so the story that she tells about a friend who accepts the shoes for the kids who need the shoes, but then doesn't give the anti-black speech that they're supposed to give as they're handing out the shoes. And so I think of that as like a practice of stealing away. Mm. Um, And thinking about refusal as enacted by black and indigenous communities is very important for movement work. So we have to think about these things together alongside each other. Um, in order to move forward in our respective liberation, sovereignty movements. Yeah, I think another, I think one important point that Maynard brought up was about how despite all, um, all there is to critique about Black Lives Matter and the way that it's been commodified by mm-hmm. 
by different organizations um, and companies, particularly after 2020, um, people's lives were still transformed by it, right? She was kind of like, there's never been a time where this many young people have been saying, <clears throat> abolish the police um, and talking about it and being proud of it and being able to come out and say that. So she was like, we can criticize the co-optation, but we can also be proud of what people can now imagine as possible. Yeah, I thought that was a really good point. Um, and I think I think there are nuanced ways to appreciate and still hold a critique, but that's not mm -hmm. for this episode. <laughs> not, and some people don't think that. There are some people who are like, it has to be one or the other, right? Like yeah. things are very black and white <laughs> in a lot of people's minds. Which is um, a core tenet of white supremacist culture. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you're curious about that, just Google um, Tema Akum, white supremacist culture, and you can read all about it. Uh, <laughs> the last thing that I wanted to highlight from this interview was the connection that the interviewers bring up. And then they kind of, um, Simpson runs with it, right, between Ashinabe thinking and Mariam Kaba's ideas on abolition. And both think across the kind of magnification of harm across scales. So we have different places where people can experience harm on the level of the individual, on the level of interpersonal, on the level of institutional, and also globally. And these scales are interdependent on each other, right? And they show our interdependence on each other. Right? And they also highlight that there is no such thing as individual liberation. So again... Even on the IG girls might say, if you drink water and pray and write on your sticky note that liberation is coming, right? You cannot liberate <laughs> yourself. You cannot, right? It is not something that you can just hope to do. Um, we can only experience liberation in community, in relation and in connection with each other. And Black and Indigenous thought, right, is not new to that, right? They've always mm -hmm. been deeply concerned with the struggles that are taking place in other parts of the world and in communities other than our own. And I think the difficulty or the stickiness or the... Um, things get a little rough, right? When it comes in when we attempt to hierarchize and translate this kind of incommunicable, incommunicable experience across communities. And for me, my personal stake, right, is when I see black radical theory being used as a springboard for the ascension of other racial groups at black folks' expense. Because then again, right, that is that cycle. We're not doing anything different. We're just replicating the same old anti-blackness just with different groups mm. of people. That is a read. That is a read as praxis. As praxis. Re I as mean, reading. Praxis. Reading. <laughs> is a praxis. Um, but let me not get ahead of myself because I know we'll talk more about it in our next section. Which is what? Which is? What? What in, in the, the world? world? What in the world? Hi, Amber. Hi, Ken. <laughs> hi, <laughs> hi. Um, Not quite sure we said that earlier, but hello. Uh, it is a pleasure and an honor to bring you to our space today. And if y'all don't know who Amber is, y'all better get to know her quickly. I mean, 
Amber Starks, aka Melanin Muskogee, is an Afro-Indigenous, African-American, and Native American advocate, organizer, cultural critic, decolonial theorist, and budding abolitionist, period. She is an enrolled citizen of the Muskogee Creek Nation and is also of Shawnee, Yuchi, Quapaw, and Cher- Cherokee descent. Her passion is the intersection of Black and Native American identity, and her activism seeks to normalize, affirm, and uplift the multidimensional identities of Black and Native peoples through discourse and advocacy around anti-Blackness, abolishing blood quantum, period, Black liberation, and Indigenous sovereignty. She hopes to encourage Black and Indigenous peoples to prioritize one another and divest from compartmentalizing struggles. Period. She ultimately (laughs) believes, period, (laughs) she ultimately (laughs) believes the partnership between Black and Indigenous peoples and all people of color will aid in the dismantling of anti-Blackness, white supremacy, and settler colonialism globally. She earned a Bachelor's of Science in General Science with an emphasis on biology and anthropology from the University of Oregon. Thank you. For joining us. Thank you. Today. Welcome. Thank welcome you. to the Zoom studio. <laughs> oh. Yeah, seriously, I this is the biggest honor. I feel like being on Zora's Daughters mean like you made it because oh. I have oh, no. been <laughs> for real. You guys don't know how many times I have been at streetlights, you know, at a stoplight listening and just have my whole world shook. You know, like I feel like I get so much of my political education from you guys that I'm just very much like grateful to you both of you for just illuminating such dark spaces and I mean I think a lot of our listeners I'm not trying to speak for all of them but I know just as someone who is um, a very dedicated listener how very much I have been changed and um, so being on the show is like what (laughs) What in the world? <laughs> what? Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, that's, so that means so much coming from you. And actually, the way that I first found out about you was from Code Switch. So I was like, wow, oh, she, she's real? like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm an avid listener of Code Switch. And I was just like, oh, she done. She'd be doing some things if she's on Code Switch. Like, that's that's NPR. That's public radio. <laughs> that is public radio for us. <laughs> so we are also honored and thrilled to, to have you mm-hmm. on the podcast. Um, yes. So as, as I do, because I'm a nerd, I did some research, read up about you, read up on some of the, <laughs> some of the pieces that you wrote. And in an interview, you had this really beautiful statement. And instead of me trying to oddly summarize it. I will just read it back to you so everyone can hear what you said. So you said, quote, I grew up enculturated as a black woman, and I am kind of on a reconnecting journey to learn more about what it means to be Muscogee and also navigating my blackness and my indigeneity as a whole person versus compartmentalizing those identities and showing up fully as both black and native, end quote. So one of my closest friends is she's also black and indigenous, and she once shared with me that connecting with her Métis traditions was like coming home. She felt like she found a part of her that was missing. So could you explain a little bit for our listeners what you mean by enculturated as a Black woman? And then tell us what, you know, what prompted your journey. Yeah, so for me, enculturation means, you know, the peoples I grew up with, right? The community who, um, who taught me, you know, what it means to be who I am, right? I, I very much am 
a black woman, you know, racially, like when people look at me, I'm racialized as a black woman, but I also grew up within community with black folks who, yeah, who very much invested in my, myself, my well-being, my, you know, all that I am. You know, I always tell people that who I am is um, very much a culmination of the people from my community, my teachers, my, my family, you know, extended relatives, you know, folks who who saw me as a as a kid and, you know, saw my potential. And so I learned not only what it means to be black, you know, um, you know, physically and culturally, but also politically, right? I, mm. you know, understanding my blackness and even my position in the world, but mm. not necessarily as a way to be like, you only belong here. Like you, I, I think I was taught that, you know, you get to be black how you, how you are black, right? From other black people, right? And Ooh. so I think I learned mm. that my blackness is more than sufficient from my community, right? Um, from the people who were around me every day. Um, yeah, and so I think, so that's what why I differentiate between being enculturated as a black person and, you know, then reconnecting as a native person. So I, from as long as I can remember, you know, my dad made sure that I knew that I was Muskogee or he'd say we're Creek. Right. And we'd always have these little things around the house to remind us that we're also um, Creek um, or Muskogee Creek. And, you know, my dad would try to teach us what he could, but being geographically separated from um, my people's, my reservation in Oklahoma, I think that, you know, there was always this longing, like, what does that really mean? And am I really native? You know, like I, I always doubted. Um, that I really got to be native. And so, mm. uh, you know, as I grew up, I think the first time I went home to Oklahoma, I think I was 18 um, and uh, it was for a family reunion and we were on our, my grandmother's family allotment, which if folks don't know about allotments, um, around the late 1800s, federal government broke up reservation land um, and privatized it, gave it, you know, to each native person in an attempt to steal land and also to break up community. Um, and so a lot of folks have lost their allotment land um, just because of the way settler colonialism and white supremacy has worked um, and capitalism. And so, but my grandmother has been able to hang on to my, you know, great grandmother's land. And so I think that is when it became really real for me. And also being around, you know, folks who would say, we would say are visibly native, right? Like it, it. I was like, oh my gosh, like this is really a real thing. And, you know, these really are my peoples. And, you know, just having this kind of moment of like, oh, you know, and and then I think, you know, later on understanding how it then that important that really is to be around community, right? Like I can't imagine what it would have been like to not grow up in a black community and then be, you know, like, can I be black? Am I really black? You know, like mm -hmm. which a lot of Afro-Indigenous folks who grew up in Native communities then have that reverse struggle, right? So um, for me, reconnecting is, you know, as your friend said, walking home, you know, um, mm. I, I see my journey is, you know, my Native ancestors, my Muskogee and Cherokee, um, and probably my Shawnee, 
um, relatives were forced on the Trail of Tears from Alabama and Georgia, which are our traditional homelands, to Oklahoma, forcibly walked, you know, um, on the Trail of Tears. Um, and I think that I kind of see my journey the opposite way, right? Like I'm walking home um, to my homelands, to my cultures, to my peoples. And so there is a very huge learning curve. There is a lot of patience. There's a lot of learning, you know, how to do it respectfully, understanding protocol, like all those things that still oftentimes make me feel like, am I, is this, am I doing this right? Am I authentic? Mm -hmm. um, but then also coming to the understanding that this is my journey. You know, my journey wasn't to grow up on the reservation, right? My journey was, you know, I, I try not to long for um, what could have been, right? Instead, mm -hmm. I try to honor that this is where I'm supposed to be and mm -hmm. that I use this path um, to learn, you know, this is my time to be, for now, you know, now to be enculturated also um, as a Muscogee woman, as a native woman. And um, yeah, it's very, it's a really beautiful, it's been a beautiful process for me. I have a lot of Muscogee relatives who have been so very amazing pouring into me, who see me, right? Who who look beyond, you know, what the settler state, what white supremacy would say, you know, mm -hmm. you're not worthy of this because you didn't grow up here and because you're black, right? The way that we have been taught who is and who isn't native, um, who isn't who isn't black is very steeped in some of our understandings of like blackness and um, nativeness. And so I think walking home for me is a challenge to those ideas, is a challenge to the fact that I don't get to be fully black and fully native. You know, I try not to see myself as half and half um, or part this and part that. But when I'm in, you know, mainly black spaces, I remind myself, you are fully black and fully native. And when I'm mostly in, you know, native spaces, I'm fully black and fully native. And that, I think that that takes practice. Um, you know, it's not like I go in, you know, and do a moment of like remember who you are it just <laughs> i just try to live it right like i try to i try to show up whole um because i think that not doing so is a disrespect to both of my ancestors um and so i try to honor them you know in the work that i do but just in my everyday life when i'm not on you know um i, I don't want to perform blackness and i don't want to perform nativeness like i just want to exist um as the the whole person I should get to exist as, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, picking up on that that thread of what people see, which is, as you said, they see a Black woman when you're a child, a Black girl. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what you said about um, the hyper-invisibility of Indigenous people and the hyper-visibility of Black people. So people see your Blackness and they don't necessarily see your in your indigeneity so what do each of those positions mean for you and what kinds of challenges or opportunities do their combination provide for you as an afro-indigenous woman committed to liberation yeah so i think under settler colonialism the goal of settler colonialism right is to remove and replace the native and usually through genocide right so as a person who's afro-indigenous my indigeneity or my blackness is supposed to be genocided or my, my nativeness is supposed to be genocided. And so 
um, and, and I would say this for, you know, relative, native relatives who are not also black, but in general, like we are supposed to be genocided um, um, and erased. And so when I, sh you know, as I show up as a black and native person, it feels like a contradiction. It feels like, um, it feels like I'm not um, participating in the system as I should be, which mm -hmm. I'm okay with, right? Like, good, I'm not. I'm not going to perform, um, like I, I said before. But anyway, I feel like, um, so when I stand in my nativeness, um, I think it confuses folks. It, you know, especially folks who, who have an idea of what they think nativeness mm -hmm. should look like and be mm -hmm. like, and, you know, what I'm supposed to wear. I think a lot of times um, we, we think of nativeness is like plains Indians or plains natives, you know, mm -hmm. headdresses and, um, you know, breastplates, you know, like there, there are these stereotypes about what native people are supposed to look like as a form of fetishization, right? We don't, we don't want native people to show up how they really are in the, you know, the diverse ways that we do show up in, with our diverse cultures and our diverse, um, nationhoods right like we have an expectation under these systems that native peoples exist a certain way and so when folks delineate from that it is you know it boggles the mind right it <laughs> um and oftentimes people will then reject your nativeness like it's insufficient it doesn't um it doesn't line up right so when i talk about the hyper invisibility of nativeness or indigeneity i'm talking about the the intent the the intent to genocide the native mm -hmm. the intent to remove the native from their land from you know um the identity just so that the settler state can be legitimate right if there's no mm -hmm. more native people if there's no more native bodies then this becomes our land but native folks are still here you know we are we are living breathing cultures and so in living and breathing we complicate settler colonialism. We complicate the project, the ongoing project of settler colonialism. Um, and then, you know, I think about blackness being hyper visible. You know, I hear this a lot, you know, black folks are everywhere. You guys, you know, you, you guys have Black Lives Matter. You have, you know, all this, yep. you know, attention. Like, why do you need more attention? And, you know, I think about it in terms of the way we are supposed to be hyper surveilled, right? Mm -hmm. Like there are supposed to be more of us because, you know, that was the project of, um, you know, the plantation is that you, we need more black bodies as capital, um, mm -hmm. as merchandise, right? To steal labor from and not just steal There's labor, still whole, yeah, still whole lives, still generations of folks, you know, right? Like we inherit our enslavement, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's not something we become later in life. It's like, if our mothers were black, we were automatically enslaved. And I would even argue if your father was, um, but that's, a, you know, a different conversation. That's a, that's a, <laughs> that's a yeah, you know. <laughs> you know, birth of a nation kind of situation. But, you know, like I, um, so the hyper visibility of black folks, black bodies, black lives 
is a form of surveillance. It's a form of commodification. It's a form of um, also normalizing our oppression, normalizing mm -hmm. um, our pain, right? Like you see black folks getting lynched online and folks are just like, oh, that's really sad. It's just another black person, right? So we're normalizing black folks being destroyed. Um, yeah, constantly. And so I, I don't necessarily see the hyper visibility of black folks as justice, right? Like I definitely um, feel like there are ways that we, you know, tell our own stories. And I feel like that is, that's brilliant. And that is what black folks do for ourselves. Like we have always been our own liberators, right? We have mm -hmm. always been, you know, um, abolitionists, right? Like mm -hmm. that is our lived experience is abolition. And so that is different than the hyper visibility done by the states, right? Um, as a as a means of, you know, commodifying us as a means mm -hmm. of like making sure we know our place in, you know, in this society, um, in these systems and a reminder that, you know, no matter how many people see us, you know, the system kind of gets to decide how people see us, right? But something that I was like thinking as you were talking and talking about this visibility and its connection to surveillance that I think a lot of people really, as you talk about, just kind of, that kind of goes past them. Like, how do you, how do we know what we know about these different communities, right? And it's through how they are surveilled. And yes. from, as a researcher of gender-based violence, right, the two communities that are always told that we have the most amount of violence, yep. right, our Black and Indigenous communities. And I had a really interesting conversation with um, a older Black woman who helped me reframe how I was thinking about this. And she said, are you sure that Black men are five times more violent than white men? Or is that just what you know from what's being reported to you? Mm -hmm. And it, was, it wasn't all no, you know, pick me shit, right? It was on some like, <laughs> like, think about this, right? Like the statistics, the stats, what we are able to see, how much of that data is influenced by police presence or governmental presence or surveillance on reservations and things like that. How much of that information is reported, right? Mm -hmm. And then how much of it in these other communities, like white, Asian, and non-Black, um, Latin communities, right, are um, actually just not reported, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then it got me thinking, right, like, yeah, that makes absolute fucking sense. Like, how is it that, <laughs> okay, let me, um, let me figure out, the descendants of European colonizers are then marked as people who are not violent in their own homes. That, that, mm -hmm. that doesn't, that doesn't make mm. sense, right? right. Um, and so I think that that helped me reframe thinking about thinking about surveillance and its connection to visibility. But as you say, right, people also, I think, because of social media, mistake visibility for some kind of justice, in a sense. Right. Um, and I blame the civil rights movement for that. But that's not even <laughs> <a good> really... <laughs> Representation of visibility, I blame the civil rights movement for that, for sure. Um, but all of this to say or really get to what I've been thinking about, too, and just inspired by, by your work, but also my own research and thinking, um, is how do we 
how do we bring these two communities that are always seen as the most marginalized or the most this, um, the most that, right? That then is reinforces what I would say is a lie that there needs to be more government intervention or more surveillance because we are the most X, Y, Z. Um, how do we how do we build movements around what is then as white supremacists, anti-black, anti-indigenous logic would tell us are two separate things, right? Which is indigenous sovereignty and black liberation. Yeah, um, so I, I wanna start by saying that, you know, I differentiate um, these two things, um, uh, you know, separate technologies of resistance mm-hmm. um, to speak to very specific issues in our communities um, um, in our respective struggles. But I always see them having commonality and, you know, understanding that we have a mutual oppressor and that the destination is the dismantling of these systems that harms mm-hmm. both of us. Um, these systems are not separately like um, you know, like n- the goal isn't different. It's all the, the same to destroy both of our peoples. If you can't commodify mm-hmm. us, destroy us, right? Mm-hmm. So I separate these out, not as a means of saying, you know, this doesn't happen to black folks or this doesn't happen to indigenous folks, you know, because I think a lot we have a lot of the shared, some of the share, same shared struggles. But I think that when I say indigenous sovereignty, I'm speaking about, um, indigenous nations who have the right to um, Mm -hmm. self-governance, you know, as in the ways we did prior to contact, prior to this project of settler colonialism, white supremacy and um, uh, racial capitalism, which I see as a triad. I try not to like, you know, um, I try not to separate those three out because I think they work in tandem, right? And Mm -hmm. so I'm speaking directly to the ways that those three, um, those three, Pro- programs, whatever we want to call them, um, are harming Native folks specifically, right? Mm-hmm. Um, genociding us to steal our land, um, uh, to inauthenticate our relationship to the land and to the land of our ancestors, um, to, to one another. Um, and so when I think about Indigenous sovereignty, I'm thinking about us as being, you know, stewards of our ancestral lands, um, having the right to self-determination and autonomy on our ancestral lands and to remind folks that this is, um, you know, this is still Native land, Native people still exist. And I want to remind folks that we are the, you know, this, we are the rightful heirs of this land, not as owners, not, we don't, I will say for the most part, most Native people don't see ourselves as like landlords, right? Like we're not, you know, trying to own the land in order to then like make, make people pay rent. But um, <laughs> this is a genealogical relationship to this place and that um, no settler project has the authority to take that away, right? And mm-hmm. so when I'm thinking about indigenous sovereignty, I'm thinking about, you know, land back. And I know that that is a, a tagline and some people think, see it as like an eviction notice but really it's a reclamation of like identity um, and a reclamation of, um, you know, this as our ancestral home. And so this settler project exists on top of like the bones and the histories and the traditions and the cultures of our ancestors. So um, I'm trying to point out, you know, that, that we need to respect that 
Native folks have the right to self-governance, self-determination, and autonomy, right? Mm-hmm. And when I'm talking about Black liberation, um, what I what I also want to say is Black folks are the descendants of Indigenous peoples of Africa. I, you know, I try to really, when I speak about Native people, say Native people instead of Indigenous, especially when I'm trying to compare struggles, because I don't want to discount the fact that Black folks have indigeneity to the lands of our ancestors in Africa. Um, uh, so I try to say Native versus Indigenous, but Indigenous sovereignty is also a global um, mm. a global phenomenon, right? Like I'm thinking about it as like Indigenous people everywhere have the right to refuse settler colonial um, institutions and projects. Uh, and so that includes Black Africans or Africans um, in Africa, like have the right to um, refuse settler colonialism. So when I'm speaking about, um, you know, um, Black liberation, I'm speaking to the ways in which the the settler state and white supremacy and um, racial capitalism views our bodies as product, as merchandise, Mm -hmm. as, you know, items to be commodified and used and destroyed to, you know, their their life, right? Um, That we have the right to refuse that and to resist that um, and to be Black, however we choose to be Black, right? Like our Blackness is for us. Um, and that it's not connected to like, um, health outcomes, right. Poor health outcomes, Mm -hmm. uh, socioeconomic, you know, Mm -hmm. standards of living, um, maternal death rates, right. You know, all of those things that, you know, like you were talking about, Brendan, are these statistics that get pointed out. Like if you're black, then this, 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 right. And it's usually not, um, in celebration of black. It's usually like mm-hmm. the ways in which Blackness is failing, right? The ways we are, yeah. are failing as Black people, as Black bodies, mm-hmm. um, because we haven't been able to figure out how to, you know, thrive or exist under a system that's very anti-Black um, and very, um, yeah, detrimental to who we are. And that erases like our cultural connections to like the lands of our ancestors, but also to the you know, the culture we built here in spite of, the ways that we refuse um, systems in spite of, right? And so um, Black liberation for me then is us, you know, getting to be Black how we want to be Black. And um, yeah, and not just surviving, like thriving beyond this, right? But it also is about autonomy, Right. Mm -hmm. And I think there's also a level of like self-governance and there's also, you know, those same things, like I said, talk about it with indigenous sovereignty. Um, But I think it's specifically about resisting anti-Black racism because Mm -hmm. Black liberation also has to happen within indigenous communities. Right. Like this is, you know, and indigenous sovereignty, us as Black folks have to think about the ways in which we participate in the erasure of indigenous peoples. Right. Like these are things that you know, even between our communities that we have to talk about, you know, um, none of these projects, you know, anti-Black racism or indigenous erasure happen outside of a vacuum. Like this is all mm-hmm. happened under this system, right? And mm-hmm. so as someone yeah. who lives at this intersection, it's like, I can't fight for one and not the other, right? And I can't, mm-hmm. one can't, um, like my Black liberation can't come at the expense of my Indigenous sovereignty and vice versa, right? Uh, if I choose one or the uh, over the other, meaning 
you know, one at the cost of the other, I'm still replicating the very system that I'm saying that I'm trying to dismantle, mm -hmm. right? So for me, there really is no choice but to fight for both at the same time. But again, that's, that's because both of these systems are about the destruction of like nativeness and blackness, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, th well, thank you for explaining and, and really just bringing it together so beautifully. <laughs> I um, There are lots of things sitting with me from what you said. I think this is when you talk about genocide, genociding peoples and how settler colonialism is a project that does that. Um, it does that to native folks. And I appreciate you also defining um, native and indigenous for us and like in your use of them. Yes. Uh, so I'm going to use it in the way that you did. Um, okay. <laughs> and also, yeah. So like genociding native folks and, um, and black folks, but through different projects, like the projects yes. of settler colonialism and chattel slavery. Yes. And then also incorporating indigenous people or attempting to incorporate native people as family Right. Yes. Or, you know, and that's air quotes for those of you who can't see me, which is everybody <laughs> listening to this. Right. Um, <laughs> um, and then marking blackness as failure. I, I I think what's really sticking with me is is your insistence through your lived experience and also through just the work that you do, the theory you produce, um, your praxis, right? How you move through the world, mm -hmm. right? That these are things that actually have to be thought together. And I think the Western Academy intellectual thought is always is, is about distinction and it's always trying to kind of yes. break things apart um, because it serves a settler colonial project. Right. If we yes. believe that native people having their land back is an eviction notice, which I thought that was a, also, <laughs> you know, I'm just going I'm just a minute over here. I was like, yes, bring in the violent tool of the state, which mm -hmm. says you can, you no longer have the right to live here. Mm. Right. Like, like, yes, bring it in, right. The eviction notice. Um, and actually what I think really the struggles that I've observed as a black person with native ancestry, um, like, is that kind of tangle well well if we give the land back then what about us right um and it's yes. like well have y'all thought about the fact that maybe people don't operate like um conquistadors you know maybe people <laughs> maybe <laughs> this could be a conversation that you know people who are committed to being in community with each other which i think is very important right that that's very important people who are committed to kind of liberated community could have a conversation about what living together looks like outside of um ownership of land as yes. constructed by yeah the government. I, I i as you know where i don't have a place in this conversation necessarily but i think the question always becomes what about our 40 acres and then it's like yeah. well what what do you then become if if you did get that 40 acres right yes so exactly. it becomes a really complicated conversation to yes. have within the black community. Yeah. And it's it like, is a number one conversation. It's probably the number one thing I get, you know, from folks like, okay, you know, if, if native folks get land back, you know, then what happens to us? And what about the fact that native people enslave black folks? So let me address both really quickly. <laughs> oh, amazing. 
<laughs> I say really quickly, but this is like an ongoing conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, as Brendan mm-hmm. as you said, if we are going to build um, solidarity, um, you know, first of all, I want to say that the our oppressor is not our mediator. We don't need them to decide what kind of future we want for ourselves between Ooh, black some, and Asian. Somebody, right? somebody. Right? We underscore. don't need permission to like decide what kind of future we want together as black and native folks. So that's just something we have to decide if we want or not, right? So when it comes to the idea of 40 acres, I wanna remind folks that this land was never the settler states to give away in the first place, right? Like you didn't own the land even when you thought you did, even as you still think you do, right? And so, um by by then saying we will give you native land i think that black folks we have to think about then the ways then we um then validate that this is this is actually the settler state's land right like mm-hmm. i think we just if we're gonna say we're gonna be in solidarity let's first think about that right um but i also want to point out yes there were native tribes that did participate in chattel slavery and when you when you think about the tribes that did so the Cherokee, the Choctaw, the Seminole, the Muscogee Creek, and the Chickasaw, these were all tribes in the South, right? Mm-hmm. And as the project of chattel slavery was ongoing, you couldn't have these oasises of like native communities that um, acted as like um, places of freedom for Black folks, right? So the settler state, the government had to find a way to get native folks to co-opt the system in order that folks wouldn't run away and find refuge, uh, find maroon spaces amongst native folks, you know, because black and native folks since the beginning of this project, since we've met, we have been in community with each other, right? And platonically, romantically, um, politically, all of those things, right? And I wanna point out that we haven't always been, you know, buddy, buddy. We haven't always like fought with each other. There's definitely been places of, you know, conflict. Um, uh, but but what I do know is that Black folks and Native folks do what other folks do when they get together, right? Like, there is relationship, like things mm-hmm. happen, right? And so you didn't want these places, the settler state, when I say you, didn't want these spaces of, you know, these oases where Black folks could run, you know, off the plantation and build community and then fight the system. Like the system understands what happens when two oppressed people get together and want to fight, <laughs> right? Like there right. is just disruption of the plan, right? And so, um, yes, five tribes did participate in chattel slavery. And yes, it tended to be the more prominent members of the tribes. Um, and there were tri- tribal members who refused and you know disagreed with the system. But we also have to understand that even though there were these powerful people who did participate in it, the whole, all of the tribes then gained from that participation, mm-hmm. right? And so as I'm thinking about it now, it's like now there's a lot of conflict within tribes around, you know, the freedmen and um, their belonging in our nations. And so I think that that's something we have to address. So I want to make sure that we understand that that is a real thing, like the, the enslavement by the five tribes. But when we're talking about 40 acres, that 40 acres is not the states to give away, not the settler states to give away. And so what I ask Native people to do is to, when we start thinking about Black folks um, being connected to the land, 
to understand that it's our responsibility as indigenous peoples to recognize the indigeneity of other indigenous peoples. And that if we're talking about being in relationships with the land, please recognize that the land recognizes the indigeneity of black folks, right? And so it is our responsibility um, to be in kinship with folks who have also been displaced, who have been forcibly displaced by the very same system, right? Because a lot of us are not on our traditional homelands. Oklahoma is not my traditional homelands, right? So we should therefore then extend that that same kinship to Black folks um, and understanding that it is not by force. We Black folks are not settlers. Black folks didn't, you know, as Brenda said, didn't come over as conquistadors, right? Like we were, we were product. We were, we were trafficked, you know, um, we were sold, you know, like this. And, and also native folks also were enslaved, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I remember a professor telling me the ways in which um, some native peoples uh, like who weren't black their nativeness was also genocided and they became black folks under, you know, the mm-hmm. system because they looked, looked quote black. Right. And so mm-hmm. we have to understand that like under the system, both of us have had to deal with the like displacement. Both of us have had to deal with enslavement. Both of us have, have had to deal with racialization of our bodies and our identities. Right. Like this, you know, we have some unique struggles, but realistically, this project has been about the destruction of both of our peoples, right? Mm-hmm. And so I want, I'm asking non-Native Black folks um, to really um, think about, you know, when we talk about 40 acres and a mule or whatever, in addition you want to that 40 acres, you know, to remember that this is Indigenous land, this is Native land first, Um and we, and then, like I said earlier, we can, we can build community um, by having conversations about, like, with one another without our mediator, right? We don't need to follow that recipe of how we, you know, how we as Black folks get what we need, right? Like, mm-hmm. we we can talk to one another, and that's not that's not going to be easy. I, I say that, and I understand how <laughs> yep. complex this is. But I think it's there's a starting point for us to recognize one another, to see each other, to learn about each other outside of what we learn from the settler state, from mm-hmm. white supremacy and from racial capitalism, right? We can talk directly to one another and we can start talking about the future we want that isn't dependent on what we've been promised, quote mm-hmm. promised, because we've been promised a lot of stuff from these mm-hmm. institutions and mm-hmm. where are we? <laughs> Anything that we have is because we did it, right? Like, I want to remind us that we have been geniuses. We have been the ones who have figured out how to get free, right? Not these systems. They they, they will co-opt Black Lives Matter. They will co-opt the civil rights movement. They will co-opt anything in order to stay relevant. And um, You know what yes, I mean? And so I think I... that it is us who makes those decisions. But we got to put on our big kid pants, you know, we guys are having like these really intense and sometimes really painful conversations. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's yeah. so much that that has just brought up for me. Thank you so much for, for giving us, us that elucidation. I mean, one of the things is what you just said uh, in, in the article that we read for today. Um, Robin Maynard, she talks about how the abolition of slavery was not the end of violence, right? It was actually a way that 
um, it actually prompted a reorganization of that violence globally. So yes. from the abolition of slavery came the scramble for Africa. I think a lot of people are like, oh, yes, abolition. Oh, yes, communities and us creating community together. And they don't, they think about it in a very like intramural sense, mm-hmm. um, which leads to this kind of like, oh, black people are getting this or indigenous people are getting this. Yes. And they did this to us and, and yep. they're not doing this, you know, things like that. It, it creates this kind of like competition. Yes. And so I think I want everyone, listeners, to just sit with what you and what Brendan had said about not everybody is going to act like a landlord, right? Like not everybody wants the land to be to be owned where you're going to start paying rent or something like that. It's like, how can we live in community together and and share this land? And that will come from a conversation. Um, yeah. I, no, go oh, ahead. I was going to say, I just said underscore <laughs> what you said. Um, and we all underscore and it's all under yeah, like we're just, we're just gonna <laughs> affirm each other this is a, a virtual hug circle um, yeah I, it's, it's important to go back to what um what amber said earlier which is thinking about these things as an interlocking set of institutions or systems yes. that move together right so it's like we cannot we cannot dislodge um indigenous sovereignty from black liberation and especially in the u.s if we're we're thinking of u.s um, centric context um because those are settler colonialism chattel slavery anti-blackness racial capitalism they all move together right you cannot you cannot have the plantation without the forced removal right the genocidal Mm -hmm. actions that include right uh incorporating native women into your families right um Mm. and so i think it's so important for us to think about this together. And I thought about it earlier. You know, I did. I was like, whoa, was I one of those black people that mentioned I have a native ancestor? But I, I realized um, I should explain that. So on my father's side, um, he's of Choc- Choctaw and Chickasaw. Mm-hmm. Chickasaw, yeah. Chickasaw. Yeah. I was like, Chickasaw, who is that? Chickasaw. And so <laughs> that girl over there. And since, he, since his <laughs> passing, um, I've been learning more about, about that piece of his of his ancestry and so but i think about it too growing up in south carolina with other black folks who always claimed you know that you know the i have a cherokee grandma or great grandma story (laughs) and how that too is 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 really a a parroting of white supremacist anti-indigenous logic which is to incorporate to kill and or incorporate the native like through yeah. and those are both genocides. I've always I've always thought of it as it being more of a like internalized anti blackness thing. To be I like my be hair too. like my hair looks like this because I have a I have a Cherokee grandmother or something or like I'm that. Red and, bone. I think, and so I think yes. Mm-hmm. And I think that I mean, Brendan and I took a class, critical native and indigenous studies. Um and so we, you know, we've read many texts and we read Native American DNA. And mm-hmm. Kim Talbear talks a lot about the way that that white settlers incorporate the native into their ancestry, but doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't really talk about what that looks like for for Black Americans and why that happens. Of course, that was not her project, but mm-hmm. um, I think I think that is something interesting. And there's and there's a different tenor and purpose to it i think mm, which yes. is which for 
just like based on very preliminary <laughs> observation and reading and understanding is more of a, I'm not fully black. More so than yes. like, I belong to this land. Yeah, and I think, so, and also to get back to something you said in connection to that um, earlier, Amber, when you talked about blackness being marked as failure. Yes. I think also, in a sense, it's what makes the settler colonial project um, anime or what animates it is also positing indigenous, like nativeness, um, indigeneity is also a failed project. Yes. Or one that is like, a fixed project in time or a, pr or a yes. primitive project and we move forward. And so I'm thinking about these kind of as poles that black people who may or may not have native ancestry, because some folks, their ancestors did run off the plantation and did build these communities. I, it's not everybody, you know, some of us need to realize that too. Um, I've had lots, lots of conversations with black people, especially Southern black people. I think, um, the project is like, well, yeah, I'm not all the way black because I don't want to be marked as a failure, right? Or Oof. I don't want to be marked as a purely black person, whatever that means, because mm. then right. what does that mean for me and my life and my purpose? Um, I'm just spouting thoughts at this point, but... Uh... <laughs> so, yes, yes to both of what you said. I, I do think, you know, again, with black folks and native folks being in such close proximity, there's bound to be so many of us who do have native heritage, right? Um, but I think that we have to be mindful of the way we participate in native erasure mm -hmm. when we just say, oh, I, you know, I'm native too. It's like being native isn't just like an idea. It mm -hmm. is like connection. It's, it's knowing your peoples, being connected to your peoples and, you know, trying to stay connected to your peoples. Um, and I know for Black folks, a lot of our nativeness, some, a, lot, a lot of folks who maybe are native did have their nativeness genocided, especially mm -hmm. when it came to census records and things like that, where, you know, we were just, it was our phenotype that decided who we were and who we weren't. Mm -hmm. And so there are these family stories. And I think, Alyssa, like you said, with Kim Tallbear, like the, you know, the reasons were different. And so they could be, one, some anti-Blackness. Two, there could be authentic stories of like, you know, connection to families and, you know, identities that got lost along the way, like intentionally, like genocided along the way. Um, and then there are just some people who are just extremists, right? Who just think Black <laughs> folks are the indigenous people of everywhere, right? Like we have these people mm -hmm. who are just pretty awful. And so I think for Black folks, there is like kind of this plethora um, of of ways in which like we have relationship to native identity. Um, whereas like, I think when it comes to whiteness under this product project, mm -hmm. it is really about the destruction and the replacement of the native, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's what complicates the situation when we start talking about anti-blackness in the native community, we have to like really speak to like, well, what's your motivation around like um, not seeing black natives as authentically native or black mm -hmm. folks who have who are descendants, right? Which is something we we do differentiate, right? Like being of descent. So it's why I say I'm Muscogee and then I'm descend descendant of Kwapaw, Uchishani um, and Cherokee. It's because, you know, I'm an enrolled citizen of one nation. I have, you know, connection to that, you know, that that community and that culture. The others, I, I know my ancestors, I know my lineage, 
but I don't really have connection to my peoples, but I don't discard that connection, right? Like that's still valid. And so I think for anybody who knows their native ancestry, but maybe doesn't have relationship or hasn't done a reconnecting journey, I think it's fine. And this is me. I'm not giving, the tribe is not giving you permission. Like, you know, <laughs> this is Amber saying that, like, I think it's okay to say you're of descent, but I also think it's really important to do the work. I don't think mm-hmm. that people should just be walking around like, I'm this. And it's like, okay, but, you know, I'm, I'm also of Scottish descent, but I don't really walk around being like, I'm Scottish, you know, like, I, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you, and you can't. You know, I can't. but that's right. No, and like, just, don't don't so, be Elizabeth Warren. Like, just don't do it. Right. So have the same respect, <laughs> right? Like, I just think you should have respect, but it doesn't mean yes. that Black folks are necessarily lying. I just think that if you don't know, but you have these stories, you have to do the work. If you, you know, if you're going to then claim communities that you know you say you come from. So I just wanted to distinguish. You know, make sure there was a distinguish between like white you know, theft of indigenous identity and black, you know. And I definitely didn't mean to like discount. Oh, you didn't. Stories or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so this episode, it was actually prompted by an interaction at the AAAs, the American Anthropological Association annual meeting. Um, And and this interaction uh, has actually been ongoing. So we we filled Amber in a little bit, but we will <laughs> we will give you all the Cliff's Notes version. So Dr. <laughs> Faye Harrison, she gave a distinguished lecture, and in it she spoke about and had photos depicting Black and Indigenous or Native solidarity during the 2020 uprisings. I think she also had a photo of um, the Dakota Pipeline protests, but that'll we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> So an anthropologist asked a question slash critique saying that Faye Harrison did not cite any indigenous scholars. And he asked when the caricatures and tokenization of indigenous people would stop. So Dr. Harrison responded that in her longer piece from which the speech was derived and in the lecture, she did cite native and indigenous scholars. But as a black woman whose commitments are to black people, she chose to amplify the voices of black scholars. So this was followed up by a series of tweets about the lecture that was like, no, I don't know why you thought this lecture was so great. It was terrible. Um, you know, she actually responded to some of the critiques that she he made. She created a Twitter. She, she created a She Twitter. created the Twitter for it? <laughs> to respond. Oh, no. Is, wow. the, is the, the tea on the streets is that if it has <laughs> created the Twitter to respond. Not sure if it, that's the truth, truth, but oh. I was like, that's... um. Gotta love dedication to truth. Yes, um, to you know? truth and responsibility, which was <laughs> coincidentally the uh, the theme of this year's Triple A's. And so looking at his feed, there's a lot of pitting of Black and Indigenous Native people and our causes against each other. It's almost as if like the cause of eliminating white supremacy is not one and the same, that we don't share that cause. Um, so yes, there. I don't even know if we should go over what he said, but there's been like, you know, he said that Black Americans do not deny American Indians the ability to exist apart from Blackness, and the way that that happens is a new age of genocide. Um, he says that Black countermapping erases indigeneity. Um, that Black America fetishes uh, fetishizes uh, natives. Um, natives and their ancestry. 
Um, and then recently he said that we shouldn't even be praising the 1619 project because because there are no other like counter histories of of the United States, but actually that's not true that's... today. No, last month, um, the historian Kyle T. Mays, his book, An Afro-Indigenous yes. History of the United States came out. Um, so, you know, I think, I think our struggles are interlinked and prioritizing one does not negate the other unless it actually does, which is what I think he's doing, right? He's like, he's negating yes. our, <laughs> our, like the struggles of black, um, of black Americans. So like he's actively being anti-black and it's yes. like, I find it odd. I'm very uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, it's, it's giving, I see you're relevant. I'm trying to make myself relevant energy. Um, mm-hmm. Honestly, mm-hmm. truly. But I think he does, you talk about caricatures and tokenization. I think he um, does, <laughs> in his response, or like the way that he frames black struggle does the exact thing that he's critiquing of yes i was just Um, (laughs) he's doing the same thing (laughs) like like making you know so i i i think it really goes aligned in what we've been talking about in some of the conversations that we've had with amber off the mic about thinking about solidarity and movements right and how solidarity truly i mean i've said this before i don't believe in it i think (laughs) we can practice coalition i think we could practice alignment with movements um, but that really just comes grounded in, in community. And so it's obvious that this person does not see himself as community with, with black people, TM, period. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it really brought up feelings of, as being someone who, who did organizing and observes movements and studies movements, of when people will literally ask black people non-black people will ask black people well why didn't you put us on your back as you're trying to run to freedom and it's like hold on, <laughs> hold on. i'm not your mule <laughs> you know yeah. like wait a minute <laughs> um but it's been really causing a, a buzz you know in in the black anthro community because yeah we are we're like well, okay well you know what what do you want us to do um do you want us to put your needs above ours? And is that not the same anti-blackness that we are trying to fight? You know, um, mm. but it's it's so important to think with these logics of white supremacy and anti-blackness together along. And yes. like, it just it's so important. So, yeah. Yeah, I remember your critiques of solidarity. I remember, you know, <laughs> some of the situations, and you know, that kind of brought up like, is solidarity dead? Is it a real thing? And um, and I have to say that it definitely has given me pause to think about is solidarity a real thing? So I would say that I don't think it's realized. I do think it's mm. a notion. And I think it's mm. something that we can work towards through like coalition building. Um, but I think that solidarity is about like um, agency, you know, political mm. agency between, you know, um, yeah, I think solidarity just kind of acts as like, sites of disruption you know maybe I don't see it as like you know we're always in solidarity like Mm -hmm. all every time all the time but it's like there are these like sites of like times where we are in solidarity and it kind of is up to us to kind of maintain you know Mm -hmm. that it's like this ongoing thing it's not we've arrived right or you know will we ever arrive I don't know but 
I think that choosing to be in solidarity is about, you know, rupturing the status quo, right? Like we are, um, yeah, I don't want it to be like a metaphor. Like I think solidarity has to be something that we practice and maybe, you know, like you said, maybe that's the word is in solidarity, it's coalition building, but um, yeah, it has to, maybe solidarity could be, um, Mm. Yeah, I think that your critiques of it always kind of give me pause. (laughs) (laughs) I think I like, I think it's interesting to hear you um, talk through it because it is so so complicated, but I I love what you said about it being something that has yet to be realized because, you know, my brain um, is very much so, I mean... It's not doing what y'all say. It's not giving what it's supposed to have gave. So I think we need to do something else. But I like how you open it up to a possibility. Um, and I think, I think those po- as you're saying, those possibilities though come with conditions. And yeah. those conditions are right, like the juncture. What's happening right now? Is it? Is it? Can we even really be in solidarity around this issue um, at this point in time? Or does this? Is this something that we just you know? Our groups of people have different goals, different aims, and we can't work with. But I think people fixate on solidarity, and I think people fixate on the solid part, which feels yes. kind of like <laughs> stuck. We're in it; it's permanent. And I'm like, uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know if that works for all of us. Mm. I think it might work for some of us, but not all of us. And so, yeah, I like, I like how you kind of are thinking through it and. We, we can continue to trouble over this forever yes. we will. Um, <laughs> we will. We will. I think the what she spoke to, too, is also a major theme of what we talked about in today's episode, which is rehearsal. Um, mm-hmm. You talked about kind of this like idea of practice. And the interview that we read was talking a lot about rehearsal as a, as a way of a generative life practice, right? Where we're, we're not just, quote, performing our values right we're actually practicing them each day and like that as a way to um to think about freedom work and to think about liberation and so it's just so it's so nice how you aligned without even really knowing what we talked about it's just like (laughs) you kept bringing back to practice and kind of um thinking about things in that in this kind of process or iterative way so which, yeah. I mean, just speaks to your brilliance, Amber. Uh, <laughs> thank you, man. You know, I just like, I want to be free and I want other people mm-hmm. to be free. And I just think that we have the capacity to be more brilliant than our oppressors. But I also think we have the capacity to replicate our oppressors. Mm-hmm. And I think it is a choice that we have to daily make. And I think even if we got land back and liberation tomorrow, if we haven't dealt with the oppressor in our mind, if we haven't dealt with like the socialization around white supremacy and racial capitalism and settler colonialism, we'll replicate the very systems because we've been taught that our that we're valuable the closer, the more approximate we are to either of those systems, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so if we if we don't like lean in and realize that there are alternative routes to like you know, living together to getting free to all these things. Like if we're not envisioning and then trying to practice, we will just continue to practice what we know. And Mm -hmm. I think that um, 
this is not to be like kumbaya, you know, I, I just think this is really hard work. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't discount what this is going to take. But I think that where we are today is just a culmination of other people's ideas of where we should be, right? And mm -hmm. so I think then we have the obligation then to then think differently, to envision differently, right? And so I kind of see my work is, um, you know, reaping the fruits of the people who came before us, my, you know, like my Black and my Native ancestors who came before us while simultaneously planting new seeds but then it's also my responsibility, you know, while I'm planting new seeds to, you know, and prepping fertile ground for my descendants to make sure that I'm weeding, right? I have mm. to weed like mm. the things that the oppressor has also sold. Because if I don't, that's going to incorp be incorporated with my seeds and the land that I've, you know, been pa passing down to the generations that come after me. And so it's, it's, uh, it's daily work, it's hard work. There are times that I'm like, you know, why couldn't I just be like an interior decorator? Not that interior decorators <laughs> no, don't have to liberation. I have that same dream. I have that same dream. I watch HGTV and I'm like, why? Right. Why can't why I just be me? like, you know, and it's like, well, you know, <laughs> this is who you are. You know, your ancestors <laughs> are refusing to let you just be like, well, whatever. You know, Literally. I'm going to go Literally. be a billionaire. <laughs> like, no, nope, there net. you go. You, you, have, you have actually wrapped up this entire episode with that last statement you've been you wrapped up this episode perfectly i think in the essay um maynard and simpson talk about how sowing the seeds of the future is is a collective praxis and yeah. you know it, it comes together with the title every day we must get up and relearn the world and so that means every day we get to decide who it is that we are going to be who we want to be and who we will be period Look I at that. It. Look at I love how things just align. <laughs> Duh. Yay. Okay. As the last thing we're gonna ask you is this is random. I just decided to ask you, but who or what are you reading right now? Oh man. Um I'm our reading listener, our listeners need uh, you know, they need um what do you call it? Reading lists for, <laughs> oh, <laughs> for the wow. time when okay, we're gone. I have to supply y'all because <laughs> I have like six books I'm reading, but the one that I'm current two that I'm currently reading. Becoming Abolitionist um, by Derricka Purnell, and then The Racial Contract by Charles Mills, I think that's the name. Yeah. Yeah, so those are the two books that I'm actively reading right now. And I will say also The Wretched Earth uh, by Franz Fanon, which I like pick up and take down, because some of it is like so dense and I'm just like, oh. <laughs> um, so those are the three books that I'm currently reading, but I'm always reading you know, I, I'm I'm a pseudo academic. <laughs> you know, I'm always on Jason. No, you're like, you're, real. you're no, real. You're real. You're yeah. more real than. Okay, let me hush. Um, <laughs> I'm always on Jason for um, <laughs> looking for articles to read to you know because I'm um, political education is you know a part of also. I think a part of also like my lived experience, you know, but I'm also just very much a thinker. I like to mm -hmm. just sit and ponder. And so I need material to be like, oh, yeah, you know. That makes yeah. you an intellectual. That makes you an intellectual <laughs> and an academic. You don't, need, Life lesson. you don't need the university. You don't need the stamp. Because you got to think academic. about it. Some people <laughs> <clears throat> literally sit and think about their own thoughts. So and then, they, and then they're like, oh, this is 
this is a translatable experience. That's funny. <laughs> Some people <laughs> are self-informed um, intellectuals, Woo. you know, it's, I was going to throw some shade at this rapper, but I decided not to. <laughs> oh, <laughs> come on. Are you talking Ooh, J- about? J. Cole. Oh, okay. I thought you were talking about No Name. I was like. <laughs> I, I knew you were talking about J. Cole and I knew you were thinking No Name. <laughs> Wait, why would, I would never disrespect the No Name. Sis said, I would diss you in under a minute and 30 seconds and I'm going my life. And, that- and less than 130 characters. Okay. <laughs> what? <laughs> All right, Amber, can you tell everyone where they can find you? Yes, I am usually on Twitter or Instagram. I technically use Twitter as opposed to Instagram. So, but you can find them, you know, under the same handle at Melanin Muskogee. And Muskogee is spelled in um, our language. So M B as in Victor S K O K E. Melanin Muskogee. Great. Yes. We love to see it. We love having you here. Um, we'll have to talk to you again soon. I yes, just, thank my you. Heart is so happy. Mine is too. Y'all don't know. <laughs> I'm like trying, you know, because I I be fangirling all the time, and then you know, I'm like, these are two people I look up to. I gotta make sure I bring it, you know. <laughs> so I can't oh, it has it has been brought brought to we are sitting at your table. Um, <laughs> we're sitting at your table. Thank you. Um, thank you. That is all we have for y'all today and this semester. Huh, thank you for listening. We'll be back in February 2022. No sooner. Um, this episode was was produced by Alyssa James and Brendan Tynes and distributed in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. This season of the podcast is generously funded by grant from the Arts and Sciences Graduate Council and donations from listeners just like you. Thank you all so much for your support. If you like this episode, please share it via social media, WhatsApp, or handwritten letter if you want to be like those we read today. We would love to hear what you have to say about this episode, so be sure to follow us on Instagram at Zora's Daughters and on Twitter at Zora's underscore daughters. For transcripts, syllabi, and information on how to cite us or donate, visit our website, zorasdaughters.com. Good luck getting through the finals, the holiday season, the end of the Gregorian calendar year, whatever it is for you. We love you all. Yes. Last and not least at all, remember that we must take care of ourselves and each other. As praxis. As praxis. As praxis. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Bye, everybody.